PBS at Union Now. Today's conversation is a part of our series, Theology in the Public Square. Dean Kelly Brown Douglas hosts three other Divinity School presidents to discuss Voices at the Table, Having Controversial Conversations. The guests include the Reverend Dr. Serene Jones. She's the president of Union Theological Seminary, as well as the Johnston Family Professor for Religion and Democracy. Dr. Angela D. Sims is the president of Colgate Rochester Grozer Divinity School. And the Reverend Dr. Emily M. Towns is dean of Vanderbilt Divinity School. We at EDS wanted to give a shout out to our friend and colleague and recent guest, Sandra Montez. Her book, Becoming Real and Thriving in Ministry, is available now. Good afternoon. I'm Kelly Brown Douglas, Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, and the Bill and Judith Moyers Professor of Public Theology there at Union. Thank you all for joining me this afternoon for what will be the first in a series of conversations related to theology in the public square. I want to especially thank three of the leading theological thought leaders and voices in our country, whom I consider not only my colleagues and friends, but thought partners. I welcome to this conversation, the Reverend Dr. Serene Jones, the president of Union Theological Seminary and Johnston Family Professor of Religion and Democracy, Dr. Angela D. Sims, president of Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School, and the Reverend Dr. Emily M. Towns, Dean of Vanderbilt Divinity School. Thank you all for joining me in this important conversation on voices at the table, having controversial conversations. Thank you. There is much to discuss in a very short time, so I wanna jump right in and get started. As many of you listening know, and those of you who have joined me for this conversation, there was another conversation planned for today, which for various reasons was canceled. I was reminded over the course of the last few days that one of a theologian's primary task is to listen, if not the fundamental task. Listening, yes, to God, and listening to the voices of God's people as they navigate their realities of faith or even non-faith. And it is in that listening to many of the concerns raised over the last several days, not the least of which were from Black women, that I come to this conversation today to listen and to learn from my thought partners. For many questions have emerged not the least of which are what are we talking about when we talk about public theology and public theologians? What is the role of theological institutions in engaging the public square? Each of us have been in the academy a long time, and we know that we have attended conference after conference after conference when someone will ask, how do we get this theology to the folks that are not in the pews, but also to the folks who are on the ground doing the work? And we see today that issues that we have been discussing forever in the academy are now being discussed in different ways on the public square. So now I return to this question. What do we mean by public 
theology, and public theologians. Dr. Towns, let me direct this question to you to get us started. Well, thank you, uh, Kelly. It's good to be with you and with uh, good friends yeah. in this kind of conversation. Uh, I don't use a very sophisticated definition of public theology. For me, it simply means that faith plays a role in how we respond to current events. And so if one wants to, to make that more formal, then we start to think about the ways in which faith plays a role in current events. What do we mean even by the word faith? Mm -hmm. um, that certainly gets debated a good bit these days when um, some of us were raised with a certain set of mm -hmm. faith principles and we find them uh, being violated and vice versa. Uh, so it becomes a, a rather lively conversation. But the bottom line for me is that um, with public theology, we recognize that religion has something to say and is also wrapped up into almost every conversation we have within the public square today, often unconsciously uh, to our peril. Um, but when we recognize it and begin to deal with it as something that is supposed to point us towards the better, the more just, the more loving, the more faithful, then I think we are getting closer and closer to bringing the fullness of what I would call the gospel witness into the ways we think and do and feel. So thank you for that. So Angela, I wanna uh, move from that, build upon that, which uh, uh, Emily just said, and, and that is, so how do we, we know we do theology in a particular way, right, in, in, in the academy, but it emerges on the public square sometimes in ways perhaps that we wouldn't recognize in the academy, but it's still people's faith-seeking understanding. It's still theology, even perhaps when it's in imperfect theological vessels. How do we engage that? And how do we listen to what's going on in the public square and so that in a way that it's in this sort of dialogical or dialectical kind of fashion, or do we? So as I was listening to Emily um, start this conversation, a question that that raised for me is perhaps what's at stake and why, why these conversations are important is that while we indeed might approach theology in a certain way, in these prescriptive classrooms, right? So even if we don't think our classrooms are prescriptive, just by the canon that we often have at our disposal, there is this methodology that's built in. And often that doesn't translate well, not only into the public square, doesn't translate well into houses of faith. So <laughs> if we can't have the conversations in houses of faith, and be able to wrestle with the tension. Um, how do we really do that in the public square? And often I think what we find when individuals gristle, I use the term gristle, right? When they gristle with the conversations that we want to have in these public spaces, there's this tension because those same conversations aren't being had 
in the church. So how do people of faith think about the ways in which we are occupying multiple spaces? We're occupying these public spaces, but the church is also a public space that's often not categorized as such. So where, so where are we accountable? And how do we hold ourselves accountable? And what happens when these, we're seeing these issues emerge that we've mm. talked about for years <laughs> in the academy? And, and we know we have these precise things to say about it, and they're, but they're emerging in different ways. How do we engage that? To whom are we accountable? How are we accountable? Uh, Serene. <laughs> <laughs> So easy question, okay. right? Go ahead, uh, Angela. Um, you know, first of all, I just want to say that when I hear the word public theology, I think that any person who is trying to grapple with the ultimate meaning of their life in a faith context is doing theology. And everybody does public theology all the time because pub the public lives inside of us and in our communities. So little p, little t, it's just reality. It's going on all the time. Now in the academy, we make a capital P, um, capital T, because we've created a discipline out of it. And that names the kind of theology that engages in particular you know, social issues. Um, but I think one of the things that's happened is the space between the capital P and the little p has grown so large and and um, as a theologian myself, I, I have to bear some responsibility for that, that we've come to think that the, that the big T um, owns uh, the real realm of what it means to do theology. And, and it's messy when you let go of those presumptions, because then you have people having conversations about things you've studied for years that don't quite fit those categories or don't even come close to even looking like it. But that's... That is for someone who wants to move towards justice and human flourishing. That's a messiness that's great to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So see, now I want to. Now I'm going to jump right in the middle of the barrel here on this, and 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 you all jump in. So I like what because you've all each one of you sort of skated around this issue that there's this way in which we do theology in the academy, right? And this methodology, and we've named it theology, yet each of us in our own theological work, be it womanist, feminist, black theology, however we name that theology, we have critiqued those methodologies. We have talked about this white supremacist methodological narrative, right? Yet then we hold the pu public square uh, if you will, the little p and the little t accountable to, to this methodology. How do we navigate that? You talked about the importance of learning how to listen. <laughs> um, and I think in many ways we find ourselves having to retool and to, in some ways, think about what we need to perhaps divest ourselves of. Mm. Um, and I don't know that anyone willingly wants to do that kind of messy, hard work. Um, but in this moment that I describe more as a reformation, particularly as I think about theological education, uh, and our response, I mean, the Academy has always responded in different ways to crisis moments. 
Um, and, and we find ourselves now thinking about how do we respond to this crisis moment, recognizing that there are voices that we need from whom we need to hear, right? How do we take ourselves to them? Not how do we bring them to us, but how do we go to them so that we can hear what's not necessarily always evident in the music to which we're listening, in the books that we're reading, um, in the papers that we're trying to get written. Um, and sometimes our conversational partners are not very helpful either um, because there's an investment. Um, you know, we have, to, we have to own the fact that theological education in and of itself is an enterprise. It's a business enterprise. Uh, and so what does it mean for us to think about the different ways in which we have to come alongside others who are talking about the very issues that we ourselves at different points have said are of importance, that they're the heart, they go to the very heart of why we do this work that we do, why we've committed our lives to doing this work. Um, and while we oftentimes also find ourselves thinking, how do we do it without harming people? Yeah, yeah. Emily, I saw you. I saw you shaking your head, and I like this this point of how do we do it without harming people? How how do we listen and and retool so that we can listen to people the non the quote unquote non theological? But I like what Serene says here. It's not they aren't non theological thinkers. Uh, who's who's to define that? How do who should we be listening to? How do we divest ourselves of that which has given us this kind of platform, uh, yet we are committed to this theological work, not because of the academy, but because we think that theology has something to say about a movement toward justice. How do we do that? Yeah, I think for me at least, it becomes uh, critical for me to remember why I got into this work to begin with. And that was because I did not hear the faith of the people who raised me coming out of the textbooks I was being made to read. And it wasn't so much for me at the time that I didn't want to read those textbooks. I just wanted to know why my people were not there. Um, when in fact, and you know, you all know I talk about my 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 grandmother, Miss Nora, a lot sometimes as very formative and one of the most deep theological thinkers I ever knew. Never got past the eighth grade, um, but she knew more about communicating the power of the gospel in life than um, most of her preachers. And so that became an interesting tension in a church setting. Uh, but, but, but for me, it's if I cannot communicate in the language that I was raised with, and I cannot bridge that language with the, the language of, of what students often call the big words, then I have failed my mission my promise I made when I signed up 
to do this thing as an ethicist uh, who cares about the black church and the people in it, and then spreads that caring out into other communities of faith. Um, so I think then, I guess this is a, sh a long way of saying, one must learn at least two languages mm -hmm. and speak with integrity with both of them. Mm -hmm. And to make sure those languages are saying the same thing, but in a different way. Because you don't want to be saying uh, one thing to the women's uh, group in a local church and another thing to the Society of Christian Ethics. Got to say the same stuff. I may put it differently and often do. Or I may drop phrasing from one language system into the other just to see if anybody's listening. But I think it's important that we become agile in our thought and in our actions. Because I think, you know, I have learned some things by having to wrestle with Boltman and Moltman and uh, a few of the other Mons that are the holies of the holy um, within our disciplines. I've learned some things. Tillich has taught me something about the power of symbols. But I don't want to not have that knowledge and not be able to look at folks if I'm called to preach in a community and I don't know how to communicate the power of the cross to them. Um, so it's, it's, for me, it becomes this back and forth which makes me a better thinker and doer and believer that also offer, has something, I think, to offer to folks. And, you know, the listening is crucial. Uh, I'm, I'm blessed to have um, millennials as PhD students now, and they know I need help. <laughs> and they constantly feed me cultural information. Once one of my students kept me out of trouble when I didn't know who Cardi B was, <laughs> but had to talk to a group of undergraduates about her. And she just pulled me aside and said, I don't think you know what you've just agreed to do. So let me help you here. Listening and learning from not only the older generation, but the younger generation is crucial because they will help us find the words. So, so that leads me to ask, Thank you to ask, how do we not become, I, you said that you didn't hear, you know, the faith that sort of represented your grandmother and you, and you didn't hear your faith in those books and from those theologians. How do we not become those theologians that bought, that we were critiquing and that we said, we didn't hear our stuff there, so we got to do it. How do we not become those to say this to, this generation that's my son, Serene's daughter, that live in social media, that live, you know, uh, on the hashtags and that are listening to people talking about things like the Black Christ and other things. And they're mm -hmm. wondering like, what you doing? How do we not become the people that we railed against in relationship to the sort of, for lack of a better word for calling sort of the social media generation, the ones that are out there, uh, we're all talking about Black Lives Matter, but doing that work in a different way and maybe an mm. imperfect way, but it's my son, right? 
it's 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 Serene's daughter because they're always like on our case. Uh, so how do we not become that generation that didn't listen uh, uh, to them? I think Emily's just given us an example, and you have too, in pointing to yourself and Serene. It's like staying connected, uh, thinking about the ways that we are really intentional about fostering and nurturing relationships. Because folks, folks will know if we are sincere or not. Mm-hmm. And when we bring our own authentic self with all of our questions, with all of our not knowing, folks are willing, for the most part, to really engage. It means that, again, Emily talks about knowing multiple languages. It means that we may have to learn their language. But they'll open up. And, and Angela, I love what you just said. Um, I think a big part of it is also to not be, um, you know, the, the, the norm that everyone that you impose on others it involves admitting how much you don't know mm-hmm. and admitting how uncertain the whole thing is and admitting the holes in it. Um, and what a way to teach, uh, you know, intellectual curiosity and humility um, by admitting that, in fact, we don't know, we don't have a hold on this, um, and we're making it up together all the time, um, and uh, you know, and and then this notion of how do we navigate it? I think I go back to this image of I want it to navigate me. Mm-hmm. I want to be navigated by it. I don't want to be the navigator, mm-hmm. and that's that's where when you get navigated you a different kind of knowing happens so i have uh i'm going to be honest to 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 our time but how do we you know when we came into this theological enterprise uh each of us and we came through different mentors who talked about uh bringing new voices to the table uh who talked about new sources for doing theology or doing ethics and sources that other people that long ago said, oh, those aren't valid sources. And uh, how, who, what are the voices or what are the sources that perhaps we need to open ourselves to and can we, uh, uh, as we try to engage a different demographic, a different audience that these, you, we know, that millennials and younger, whatever that generation is below millennials, that uh, they are leaving the church. Uh, Theology, uh, what's that? Yet they are asking deep theological questions. So how do we, are we willing to open the dialogue? How do we do that? What are the sources we need to start bringing into Mm -hmm. our theological uh, discussions and listening to, we talk about listening. where should we be listening? And are we ready to do that? Because it might change the way we've thought about theology. I think the way you frame that question suggests that we may need to rethink how we think about the church. Yeah. Because the generation may be leaving quote unquote um, congregations, but they're not leaving their faith. Yes. And for many of them, they've come up in an era where this notion of service learning is crucial to their own sense of identity and the ways in which we now see them engaging 
in these various arenas across society. Um, and for me, that raises the question, to whom is theology in service? Mm. Mm. Yes. Yeah. 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 Good. Emily, you're shaking your head. <laughs> well, yeah, I, 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 uh, I'm so aware of the ways in which um, we try to lump different generations under the same set of, of uh, practices and beliefs. Um, and when I think of the millennials I know, that's um, a fairly large age range. And some of them are having babies, <laughs> older in life, closer to their 40s. But they are also folks that are just peaking over 20, 30, over into 30. Um, that's a lot of people to listen to. Yep. I think of the conversations I've been in on as I've tried to listen to what some of the young black women are saying now as they call themselves millennial womanists. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> Tell me about it. I want to know. And then I got all confused when, you know, some of the older millennials are going, not interested. And some of the younger millennials are going, I don't know. And then there's middle group of, we're trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, how do I, the question for me becomes, how do, how do I pay attention to the sweet? Just like I have said yeah. over and over again, black people are not a monolith. Right. Neither are age groups. That's right. Um, and so we think about, you know, what's the church doing or not? Um, the pushback I see some younger pastors getting when they try to have a truly intergenerational ministry which means some of the old folk got to listen to the younger folk mm -hmm. and vice versa. Um, I don't know that we're sometimes ready for the kind of change that is necessary for us to really hear each other. So I try to start in small settings. Uh, you know, I'm a firm believer. You start with a few and grow. Um, uh, all of this is to say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I really don't know. I just know I have to keep trying. Mm -hmm. I have to keep listening. I have to keep um, exploring. I need to continue to widen the circle of folks I talk to on a daily basis, which is a little difficult in this current era and sometimes much easier because these kind of media bring all sorts of folks to the table. And if we opened up, if we had the, the format of this opened up so we could see everybody who's listening to us, uh, I would wager it would be a mini splendor thing. That is something that you just, I find myself, I just have to sit with and listen to and try to strategize with folks that don't look like me and don't think like me to see what we can come up with together. I think one of the most important things for uh, theologians and those of us in the academy and uh, trying to lead theological institutions and do this work, 
for us to be able to say is something you just said, <laughs> Emily, I don't know. And how hard it is for us to say, I don't know. And to listen and 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 to learn. Zareen, you're in New York City and, and I'll, I'll with this question before we wrap up, you know, at Union Theological Seminary that is known for having these sort of hard conversations and uh, figuring it, trying to figure it out and in a city where you got everything going on. Uh, uh, how, how does a place like Union and, and stay connected? Uh, and how do you, the place like Union begin to have uh, these hard conversations and sometimes controversial conversations, but how does a place like Union that's known for knowing say, <laughs> I don't know? I mean, you just said it. Uh, how, how does a place like Union itself grow, which it always needs to be doing? Um, and that, uh, I think the two most important things is first accepting how deeply messy these conversations are. Mm -hmm. They're just a mess and there's no perfect way to have them and there's no perfect thing to say. So get rid of the righteousness. Uh, <laughs> conversation. And then the second thing that, that will kill the righteousness is the reality of the I don't know. And to really uh, deeply embody that and to learn to not be afraid because you don't know. Because I think the uh, righteousness in any form usually has underneath it fear um, that you don't know. Mm -hmm. And somehow you're inadequate, but we get stronger by admitting the messiness and the uncertainty. Thank you. The messiness of not only theological conversations, the messiness of doing justice. Uh, and that's what at least we're all committed to doing somehow doing the justice through our understanding of who we are as theologians, as ethicists, etc. I want to thank each of you for being in this conversation, which could go on forever. And, you know, these, I want to say to the listening audience, as Angela Sims said before we came on air, so they're just going to get to listen in to the kind of conversations we have all the time. Uh, with each other. Thank you for listening in. Now you see why these are my thought partners as I try to work my way through the theological messiness of what I don't know. And I think at least what we've modeled here, I hope, and continue to model uh, with one another and for others is the importance of dialogue partners and thought partners, because no one of us has all the answers, right? And to try to at least raise the questions that have to be raised and to, to listen. So thank you for uh, helping me to raise those questions, uh, to think through those, and to even as we've ended up at the same place of not knowing. But you know what that not knowing does, it means that we're forever seeking, we're at forever seeking the truth that is justice and the truth that is God. And so for that, I am grateful for your theological partnership, your theological witness, and for our continued theological dialogues and conversation. 